All right, so that's mission moment. Okay, so today we are going to be moving forward in our first John sermon series. Uh, and so last week, Pastor Marco had talked about how in first John, basically our, it's, John is talking about how our biblical doctrine determines our fervent devotion. Basically he's saying what we believe determines how we live. And we believe that the gospel is true, that Jesus came to earth as man, fully man, fully God, and he died for our sins to pay that price. And so we believe that, and so the grace that is shown to us through that act uh, really decides how we're going to live day in and day out. That's basically what last week was about. And so today we're actually in the next section of, of that same passage where John sees what he said is true, but it also raises questions. It's difficult to kind of understand sometimes because the reality is that we believe the gospel is true. We believe that Christ paid for our sins, and yet we see a disconnect between our lives and the way that it kind of seems like we should react to that because it seems like our actions should react in a way that are righteous, that are holy, that we don't sin anymore, and yet the truth is we all do sin, right? And so we see this disconnect and it raises questions sometimes. It makes it difficult to understand uh, where we're at personally in all of this. And John recognizes this. He knows it's something that people were asking then and he knows it's something that people even today are still asking. I'm a sinner and I continue to sin even after I'm a Christian, so where does that leave me? The questions come up like, am I really saved at all? Will God reject me because I just keep doing the same sin over and over? Is he finally going to just say, man, enough is enough and uh, you're out of here? These questions come up, and I know they come up because uh, I've thought these questions before, and I've had many conversations, even as recent as just this past month with people who think the same thing. This is a reality in the church, is that people struggle with this concept of, man, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? So John knows that people are asking these questions. He knows this is a struggle for many people, and so he addresses it. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And the truth is that we can have confidence that we are saved. God will give you a life of peace in something called eternal security. We can be confident. We can live a life without doubt. And so that is very important moving forward is just to say that up front. We can be assured of the salvation that has been given to us by Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through 1 John and we're going to see exactly how that's revealed to us and the evidence in Scripture so that we can know for sure that we are saved. So I'm going to read 1 John starting at, in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 3, and then we'll pray for our time. And it says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you so much for the, uh, the chance that we have to be together as a family here in this place gathering your people together so we may worship together, but we can also tackle uh, what you talk about in your holy word, even if it's a difficult topic as today is. Holy Spirit, I ask right now that, that you put me aside and allow the words that I say to be coming from you 
Let this message be something that, I know it's already been working on my own heart, but that works on the hearts of every person in here. That we are able to submit ourselves and repent and be uh, closer to you in relationship and be able to come to a more clear understanding of what it means to have a relationship with you and what our standing with you looks like through the rest of our lives. Lord, I thank you for all things. Amen. All right, so before we dive into this, I want to cover a couple things. And this is a difficult topic. I mean, we're talking about how do I know I'm saved? The assurance of your salvation. It's not easy to think about or talk about or even kind of know the answer to. But scripture does give us evidence and it gives us passages that speak into this. So that way we can know without a shadow of of a doubt if we are saved and if we have salvation. So first thing I want to say, though, is that this time is for you to evaluate yourself, not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your friends, not the person that cut you off on the way here today. This is a chance for you to evaluate your own heart, okay? And second, we're going to talk about the distinction between two ideas, eternal security and assurance of salvation. And these are married together, and you may even be thinking, well, they kind of seem like they're the same thing. And they're not quite the same thing, but they are part of the same idea. And so I want to lay this out clearly, so that way you have everything before you. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go through a ton of cross-references today, much more than I usually do, because I want you to have all the evidence before you. So you know exactly what this doctrine and this theology, where it comes from, why we believe what we believe. And then you're able to go back and check it out yourself. So the distinction between eternal security and assurance of salvation. So first up, eternal security. What's that really mean? Well, first, eternal security is objective fact. It means that it is true regardless of how you feel about it. The Christian, a true believer in Christ, will have eternal life with, Father, with the Father in heaven. God will not give up on you, and he will not take away your salvation because of some failure on your part. Your actions, your actions never earn you salvation. And so by the same merit, your actions will also not take your salvation away. This is completely on God. And we like to make it about us, which is where sometimes the questions come in, where it's all about me and and my choice and all of that, and we'll get into that in a second. But the truth is that if you are a Christian, God will not take away your salvation just because you sin, because we all sin. I mean, it's the truth. We want to maybe pursue righteousness and be as holy as we can, but we can't because we're not perfect. There's only one man that ever lived perfectly, and that was Jesus Christ. And so we cannot. And so I want to get that fact out of the way, is that you cannot lose your salvation because of messing up. God will not take that away. And the evidence for that, I'm going to just uh, spitball a bunch of verses at you, so write them down. They'll be up here. Check them out. John 6:40 says, "For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you believe in the gospel, submit your life to Christ, then you will have eternal life, and it will be till the last day we will be raised up." Romans 8:1, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins are forgiven today, yesterday and tomorrow. They are forgiven." Philippians 1:6, "And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ." He's not going to just give up and say, "Man, that's too hard now. That guy's a lost cause." Man, if you are in Jesus Christ, he will complete the work he begins in your heart. <clears throat> Ephesians 1:13-14, "In him you also are John 10, 28. Let's go to that one first. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We can't be, snatch us out of his hand. Sin won't. Satan won't. God is choosing to hold on to us and not releasing us just because we mess up. 
Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. When we become Christians, when we accept the gospel into our lives and repent of our sin and turn to Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters into us and dwells within us and we are actually sealed tightly. It's watertight, nothing can get away. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit so that the Lord can do an amazing work within our lives and within our heart. And that, that sealing actually then promises us the inheritance that is given to us by becoming part of God's family when he adopts us. So see, the Christian has no fear of losing salvation because of our failures. God begins a work of transformation in your heart and in your mind, and he promises he will complete it. He's not gonna desert you halfway through the process. Now the confusion with this doctrine comes into the second part. The confusion comes into whether or not a Christian can choose to leave the Christian faith. Can you choose to walk away? So there's two opinions on this, two schools of thought, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you both of them and then I'm gonna tell you what Storehouse believes. And I'll tell you why. So the first school of thought, and before I say this, Eternal security is agreed on by both parties. God will never, God will never kick you out of the family because you sin if you are a Christian and a believer, okay? That's agreed on by all. That is fact. All right, there's two schools of thought. First one, someone can be a Christian and choose to leave the faith. It's a free will choice. God doesn't kick you out, but you choose to turn your back on Christianity. And you leave and you... You're not a Christian anymore. That's the first school of thought. Second school of thought is no Christian will leave the faith because a relationship with God is something we are is not something we're able to walk away from. And so those are the two schools brought boiled down to you know, a just simple sentence. Okay. And so storehouse, we believe in the second that no Christian will leave the faith because a relationship with God is not something we're able to walk away from. And I'm going to tell you why we believe this. Uh, and if you have any questions or you want to talk about this more, please come talk to me afterward. Like, I would gladly talk about this. But this is, uh, this is why we believe this, uh, why we believe that no Christian will ever walk away from the faith. So we've already seen language that's just sealed or no one will snatch them out of my hand, right? There's, there's this uh, completed work. Uh, it's a finality to our salvation. We see this language kind of conveying this sense right? There's a sureness of salvation that we can't run away from. And that's because a relationship with God is just irresistible. When you actually enter into relationship with him, when you actually understand God's character and you start communion with him, the Holy Spirit enters into you. God is dwelling within you. I mean, there's nothing more intimate than that. When you have that relationship you don't want to leave it. And so a lot of people like to make this distinction between free will and choice, but the reality is it has nothing to do with free will because the position of storehouse, the position of this second school of thought is that we would never freely choose to leave God anyway because it's irresistible to be in his presence. So free will really doesn't have anything to do with it with a clear understanding of what the doctrine is. And I understand, though, kind of the viewpoint, because I, I actually used to think that. I used to think, well, surely I could leave. Surely I could uh, choose to walk away. Because let's be real, there's sin that's very alluring. I mean, all y'all probably have something that just tempts you, and you're like, man, I, I kind of, if I was honest, I really do want to do that. I've got that stuff in my life where sin is uh, it's just a learning. It's something that I want to do. And so in my mind, I was like, well, surely I could walk away from the faith and just decide to go do it all. And, uh, and that'd be that, right? And so by my own logic, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Of course I could walk away. But as I, as I have grown in my faith and as I have 
grown in my relationship with God, I realized more and more that, man, I could never walk away. Now, it doesn't mean I may not go through time of rebellion, time where I'm angry at God, where I want to push back against him or maybe even lash out in a way to hurt him by sinning. There may, that doesn't mean those times won't happen, but it's kind of like the child that wants to run away and may get to the end of the street, but then comes home. That's what this viewpoint is basically saying. It's not saying that you'll always be the perfect little Christian because that's not, <laughs> it's not real. There is no such thing. The reality is Christians are broken people. The only thing that divides us between non-Christians is, is just repentance. We understand that we're broken people and we wanna lean on God. And so when we have that relationship, man, it is more alluring than any sin. It is something that as much as I may wanna push against it, man, I've, I've tasted the Holy Spirit. I've had communion with God. I can't leave that. I will always come back to it. And that's a beautiful thing and it should give us confidence. And now you may say, well, I've seen people in the church and they've walked away. Or maybe I grew up with somebody and we both grew up in the church and now they're no longer at church and they go and have definitely not lived a Christian lifestyle. But I mean, they were for sure a Christian, like did all this stuff. And I see what you're saying. I definitely do. And my response to that would be humans in general are very good at deceiving everybody including ourselves. So I grew up in the church, but I didn't become a Christian until university, my freshman year. But I didn't realize I didn't become a Christian until I did, and I saw the night and day difference in my life and in my heart. Because I grew up in the church, I knew what to say, I knew the answers, I knew exactly you know, the path I was supposed to take, I could trick and deceive anyone I wanted, including myself, and there were times where I was like, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. You know, I go to church, I do these things. But my freshman year, when I had an actual experience with God where he took my heart and replaced it with a new one and transformed me, man, There was no turning back. I knew for a fact I had never had that before. God had never done that before. But I had deceived myself for so many years. Not only myself, I had deceived many. I mean, I was I was one of those youth that was in like leadership in the youth group and all that. Like, I deceived everybody. And we're very good at that in general. And like I said, it may not be a conscious choice of deceit. We could be deceiving ourselves. Or some people may point to this passage in Hebrews, all right? Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. This is used by a lot of people to say uh, that, yeah, you can walk away from the faith. And it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You may look at that and be like, oh, well, it's right there, the answer, right? But what we see is if we actually look at the original language, we look at context, we look at all this stuff, what I see is that this is not about someone leaving the faith. The language in this passage is actually conveying a sense of someone who is surrounded by believers, surrounded by Christians, to the point where they believe they're part of the group. It's actually referencing deep experiences that are based solely in the spiritual, not in uh, relationship. It's religion versus relationship. It's somebody who's absorbed themselves into Christianity as a religion without actually having a relationship with Jesus Christ. They believe they're fine. They believe that they have salvation just because they've embraced the culture surrounding Christianity. And we know that this happens because Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast demons out in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Didn't we do all the stuff? We went to church. We did everything asked of us. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These guys thought that they did everything they were supposed to, but Jesus did not know them. There was no relationship, no transformation. They had instead just put themselves in religion rather than relationship. And now the evidence for this is actually in the next two verses. People like to stop at verse six in Hebrews six. But Hebrews six, seven and eight says, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But, it, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. In its end, it is to be burned. There's one crop, one life, right? There's a section of land two plots of land, one crop happening here on each one. The same rain is falling on both, which is grace. Now this could be common grace, the grace that every person experiences, just being alive, or it could be surrounding yourself by believers who have God transformation, transformation in their lives, their, their lives are changing, transforming, you see, you see just a change in people, right? I mean, you guys know this, you've experienced it yourself where like your life changes completely when God takes over. And that doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin or anything like that, but it means that our perspective changes. You see things that happen. Grace is just poured upon the people of God. And so if you stand next to someone like that, it's gonna splash on you. You're gonna see it, you're gonna experience it, you're gonna taste it like it says in verses four through six. But then seven and eight puts it into clarity where that grace is being showered upon both plots of land. One plot soaks it up. They devour it and they are able to then produce fruit. They're healthy. But the other plot of land, getting the same grace, being poured on it, they don't soak it up. Then they bear thorns and thistles. It's a clear division between one field and the next. It's not a waffling back and forth between one harvest and the other. So this, this evidence is why we believe what we believe. Why we believe that no one will ever walk away from the faith. That it's not possible because a relationship with God is just too good. Once again, it's not about free will. It's about the goodness of God. And I share this because of a few things, right? We just went through a lot of verses, a lot of uh, cross-references, a lot of doctrine to be able to uh, have a clear understanding. And I went through it because, well, one, we preach what Scripture puts before us here at Storehouse. We're not going to back away from hard doctrine, no matter how uh, difficult it may be to be able to talk about. Number two, I wanted to give you evidence. I wanted you to be able to look at these passages yourself and say, okay, that makes sense, or maybe you disagree with me and you think that somebody can walk away. But I wanted for sure you to know that eternity is secure for the believer. Once again, that is everybody and you gotta know that. So the evidence is here for you. And then lastly, why I wanted to also share why we believe what we believe as storehouse is because I have seen the danger in living in a gray. I have known too many people, myself included, where there's times where I'm just angry at God, or I'm frustrated, or I just don't understand. The biggest example of this is a father I knew once who lost his child, his young child. He didn't get it. I mean, how can you? He didn't understand what God was doing, why God would let this happen, and he was angry. He wanted to push back against God. He wanted nothing to do with God, really. 
And he went through a long season, a long season of just struggling with his faith because he, he was just angry. And he was like, I don't want to honor God. I don't want to glorify him. When we start talking about this possibility that we are choosing to leave the faith and choosing to leave God's family, we walk into this area where, what if you do go through a season like that? By all accounts, he really didn't want to have a relationship with God. Did he walk away from his faith then? And does that then bring other things up in his own heart? Because all of a sudden, he's dealing with the loss of his son, and then all of a sudden, he's now dealing with, man, what if, what if like, I've just lost my salvation? I have nothing to lean on. I'm angry at God, and he, but he still knows the truth of Scripture. But in his anger, he's pushing back, and now he's wrestling with, you know, what if none of this is for me? I mean, that's taking away the biggest comfort in our lives through times of trial and tribulation. And so I've seen the danger of living in this gray. And so I want you to know that you can have security. You can know for a fact that whether you're in a time of rebellion or you're pushing back against God, that you can know for a fact that he holds on to you despite of your sin and your emotion. And now once again, this is still looking back at like uh, Hebrews 6, there is the reality that there, there are those in the church that aren't Christians. And we're going to talk about how do you evaluate yourself to know where you stand. Okay, so that was all eternal security. You guys good? Need to do a lap or something? <laughs> Stretch out? Okay. So next, assurance of salvation. What's the difference between the two? Eternal security is the objective fact that God shows us in scripture that he will not let us go. Assurance of salvation is our subjective emotions about eternal security at any given time. And so let me explain it this way. Imagine you got two people, right? They're getting on an airplane. One person gets on and she sits down. She's totally cool. She's been on a plane all the time. She's like, I got this. Like she busts out her book right away. A guy comes in, he sits next to her, and he is anxious beyond belief. Like, he hates flying, he doesn't trust it, he just, he's freaking out. Like, you guys know both people, right? And so, the plane takes off, they get going, the dude is freaking out, he's just super anxious, she's chilling, like, probably sleeping a little, reading a book, doing whatever. All of a sudden, they start hitting turbulence. The plane's going crazy, like to the point where the pilot is even uh, coming over the intercom saying, I know there's a lot of turbulence, but we're okay, but I know this is bad. I mean, how do you think they're going to respond, right? The woman's like, ah, we're good. Like, this actually kind of makes it more exciting. I know we're fine. (laughs) The guy, he's now thinking he's going to (laughs) die. Like, he's like, my life is over. This is it. I knew this was going to happen, right? And he's just like clenching the seat and just flipping out. So the plane goes, and then it lands, and they exit. The woman's like, man, I'm relaxed. This was good. Time to get to work. The guy's like, I need like three days in a mental hospital because I'm, like, my mind is everywhere, right? Two different people sitting next to each other in the same plane. The difference between them is that one was confident in the security the plane offered and the other one was not. That's what assurance of salvation is to the Christian. We all have the same security. We're all on the same plane. It's going to land. It's going to be fine. Some of us are able to rest fully in that. Some of us struggle with the assurance of our salvation. We're like that anxious guy on the plane. And so what we're going to do today is talk about that for the rest of our time. We're basically going to dive into your feelings. And we're going to talk about how you feel about it and what scripture says. So we're going to do that through a couple questions. All right, first question, why do we doubt our salvation? Why do we, in moments of uh, trouble or turbulence, why do we begin to doubt whether or not we're actually saved? 
Number one, fear. We just, we're just scared. And that fear could be anything from fear of not having a relationship with God, fear of not uh, maybe being a part of the family that we feel like we're a part of, or maybe it's fear um, of just hell. We have fear that rules our life, and it could be from anything. And fear in this uh, capacity, when it talks about our assurance of salvation, fear here is really a result of low or no self-worth. We don't see the value in ourselves, so we can't believe that eternal security is for me. And so if you're that person that you struggle with uh, low self-worth, and you're just beating yourself up, and it's leading to fear in your life of, man, God just really wants nothing to do with me. Why would he? I don't want anything to do with me. If you're struggling with that, man, I got one word for you, really. And that is that you are a child of the living God. That is the truth that you rest in. That gives you value because the, the worth that God sees in you was so great that he saw the division in relationship because of sin and so he came to earth as man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, and he lived a life where he felt every temptation, matter of fact, more so than we'll probably experience because Satan himself came to him to try to tempt him. He experienced all of that. He experienced heartbreak, death, everything else, and he went through one of the worst deaths you can imagine on the cross so that he could pay the price for our sin. All of it. That's the worth he sees in you. And so you may think that you have no worth. You may think that your life just hasn't turned out the way that you think it should or that there's really nothing special about you. And that's just not true. Because you are a child of God. And he values you so much that he died for you. And he enters into relationship with you. And the thing about that is it even more shows how much he values you because we still sin. And every time you sin, you're stabbing him in the back. Man, you, you are hurting the heart of God every time you sin. And yet he still chooses to be in relationship with you. That is how much he values you and sees worth in your life. And so whenever you come to those times where you just don't think of yourself highly, where you struggle with self-worth, man, preach the gospel to yourself that God loves you so much that he died for you. Why do we doubt our salvation? Number two, emotion. Now, relationship itself is emotional, and that's good. God created us as emotional beings. And so when we have a good relationship with God, we have emotions through it. And when we have a bad relationship with God, there's emotions to it. Emotion is good. The danger with emotion is that sometimes we begin to chase these emotional spiritual highs. There were studies actually done, I think in 2016, uh, about different people in different religions and religious experiences. Religious experiences and gatherings actually unlocks, uh, makes a part of the brain work that has to do with pleasure. It's the same part of the brain that sex and drugs and, and all, all that stuff, like the stuff that we like, it all unlocks that same part. And so experiences aren't bad. Like, God made us so that we find pleasure in community. That's just a fact. But the danger comes when we start relying on those spiritual highs through experience, through religion. When we begin to feel like if we don't have that, we don't have any kind of faith, we really become addicted to spiritual highs. And the absence of it results in doubt. So my question really is, does your faith rely upon a steady diet of spiritual highs? Or does it rely upon an unwavering relationship with Jesus? 
When you have those times when you're like, man, when I read the Bible, there's nothing there. Like, I don't, I'm not getting anything out of this. Are those times when you start doubting your own faith? Because the truth is, spiritual highs don't come all the time. The ordinary is just uh, moving forward, being faithful, just doing it. Are you relying on spiritual highs to determine your faith? Or is it based around relationship? Steady, constant relationship. It's not giving you that high. All right, number three. Why do we doubt salvation? Because of sin. I mean, we've kind of mentioned it before, but we ask those questions. My sin's too much, whether my past sin, my present sin, uh, fear of future sin, whether I'm uh, doing the same thing over and over, struggling with the same temptations, or very often in the life of the Christian is I'm ashamed of my sin, or I'm ashamed of my past sin to the point where it's keeping me from community, keeping me from relationship with God and with the church. Everyone sins. It's a fact, okay? I hope I didn't surprise anyone. Y'all sin. Christian and non-Christian alike. So it's no wonder we struggle with assurance because what we are actively doing is uh, it's against God. And it's something that he hates. Now my dad used to teach something to me and my siblings that really kind of helped me understand this. We, uh, when we were, well, when we were tattling, you know, on our siblings, right, as you do, uh, we weren't allowed to attack the character of my, si- my siblings, right, my brother. So let's say my, uh, my older brother, he was lying to me about something, and he liked to do that a lot. I actually believed a polar bear lived in our backyard for like years. <laughs> and so if I went to my dad, I could not say, Dad, Luke's a liar. I would get in trouble for that. I had to come and say, Dad, Luke is lying. And the reason why is because Dad said you cannot attack the character of your brother. Because one, you don't know his heart. You can't judge him for that. God's the only one that will judge us. So you can't judge him. You don't know if he's a liar. His character is based around that. Rather, he's lying. In the same way, when we become a Christian, our righteousness is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That means that our character has been changed and transformed. So we may sin, but we are no longer a liar. We are no longer a sinner in the eyes of God when it comes to judgment. God wants us to know for a fact that we are changed, that we are transformed, that we can hold on to the promises that he shows us in scripture. And so don't attack yourself with your sin. Rather, turn to God. Because it's all, it's all dependent on him anyway. Don't allow sin to cloud your mind so much that you start doubting the fact that you may even have a relationship with him. The question you really want to start asking is, uh, what's the condition of your heart? That's the evaluation. And so from this point till the end of today, we're going to talk about the practical How do you actually evaluate and know where you're at according to scripture? I mean, we need to evaluate the condition of our heart. Psalm 51, 17 says a broken and contrite heart are what God is looking for. That's what he's looking for. And that means that we have grief and conviction over our sin and that we have a desire to turn away from it and go toward Jesus. The trouble comes when we are knowingly living in habitual and unrepentant lifestyles. I say that again. The trouble comes when you're knowingly living in habitual and unrepentant lifestyles. 
says in 1 John, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. They claim to know him, but their character is that of a liar. It's not that they're lying, they're a liar, because they are knowingly living in habitual and unrepentant lifestyles. So do not doubt your salvation because you sin. The condition of your heart is what's going to speak into the quality of your relationship with God. That is what you need to evaluate. And if you do, if you're sitting here now and you are knowingly living in habitual and unrepentant lifestyles of sin, then you need to ask yourself, what's the condition of your heart? What's your relationship with God actually look like? And so the next question is, what is the evidence of our salvation? What do we look at? Because John does give us a few things to actually check ourselves against. Once again, check yourself, not your spouse. Number one, obedience. Whoever keeps his word, and in him truly the love of God is perfected. That's what First John says. Man, this is reference to the, gra- to the grace of God informing our actions. It's back to what Pastor Marco talked about last week. We believe, what we believe determines how we live. Our convictions drive our actions. So let's look at it this way. Most everyone's heard of sobriety programs, right? 12-step programs, there's a, there's a bunch of them, and they're fantastic. They're really, really good. And in sobriety programs, when you're talking about sobriety, it begins with conviction. Okay, they use language like you have to hit rock bottom, but basically saying that if you want sobriety, you have to really, really believe that you need sobriety. There has to be conviction that this is necessary in your life. Otherwise, it's totally impossible to achieve sobriety. Without conviction, sobriety is impossible to have because you could do as many steps as you can and try to do all the work involved, but without conviction, a relapse is inevitable. In the same way, obedience to a larger extent, assurance of our own salvation begins with conviction. It begins with our conviction in the gospel. You have to have belief that the gospel is true and have faith because you've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The conviction you have because of the truth of the gospel and the work he's done in you is the only way that we're able to then live in obedience. We can't do the things or act like the way we think we should. We can't just uh, pretend to do the stuff and think we'll be okay. Otherwise, relapse will occur. You'll go right back to your sin. And you could deceive everyone else in your life and yet still secretly be going back to your sin. Obedience begins with conviction conviction that you must be obedient, that you must believe in the gospel and obey. So there's two aspects of obedience that John talks about here in 1 John. He says these two are the two that you need to look at, two avenues of obedience. First is righteousness. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, in the way that Jesus walked. So basically, that's saying, live like Jesus. Now, it's kind of hard, right? He was perfect. But uh, the desire to live like Jesus is what God is looking for here. And so when we live like Jesus, we, one, are worshiping him, glorifying him, and we're striving for righteousness, it's a desire to learn more. It's a desire to pursue it. And it's a desire for scripture. There's a part of relationship where you have to want to be in relationship. And so if your relationship with God, you're finding yourself consistently just not wanting to be in relationship with God, then you're never going to be able to obey him. Because once again, it rests on our conviction of the gospel. 
of the veracity of the gospel. And so, man, do you want that? Do you want it? Are you, do you have true conviction and true belief in the gospel? Otherwise, that desire is just not going to be there. And if you do believe it and you still find yourself, man, I, I just kind of struggle with wanting to read the word. I, I struggle with wanting to know more about him. Man, pray for it. God says he'll answer our prayers so that we may honor him more and glorify him more. He's not going to give us everything we want, but he says, I'll give you more of myself. And there's nothing better than that, right? And so desire, yearn for righteousness, yearn to glorify and honor our king. The pursuit of righteousness is what God desires, and he knows we're not perfect, but that's why when we're judged, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we are judged against, not our own but our worship is going to be expressed through the passion we have for God's word and the desire to obey it. The next aspect of obedience is love. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the, new, and the true light is already shining. This is super confusing because he's like, there's an old commandment, but there's not a new commandment, but there is a new commandment, and let me tell you about it, right? Super confusing. He's basically referencing John 13, 34, when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That's what he's talking about. He said, there was a new commandment that Jesus gave, but now that I'm writing to you years later, it's not new anymore, but it was new, okay? So don't be confused by that. And he goes on and says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him, in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. As Christians, we are called Jesus himself gave us the command to love one another. To love fellow believers, to love the world, to love our enemies. Jesus talks about love a lot, believe me. And so that's important. I mean, if you see repetition in any literature, that means it's important. You need to pay attention to it. And so love becomes an evidence of our salvation because the reality is that we naturally don't really want to love everybody, right? We have difficulty loving our own family sometimes, let alone strangers, or especially those who have harmed us are done wrong to us. But yet he calls us to love. He calls us to love, and John here is saying that the love you can show to others is actually an evidence of your own salvation. And it's an evidence of our salvation because it's only possible through the Holy Spirit. And so if you see this love coming out of you in, in your life toward others, then you know that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in you. Okay? Now, we could go on for another few days on everything that love encompasses here but what I want to focus on is bitterness. We cannot allow bitterness to take root in our hearts because bitterness is the opposite of love. If you have bitterness towards someone, you cannot love them. And here it says you hate them. And so I know this is, this is tricky, right? This is, this is a tricky topic because Bitterness is uh, way too easy for us. It's way too easy. Especially if someone's harmed you and then let's say like you or them moved or whatever and so like you never see them. But every time you think of them, you get real angry and it really upsets you. And your heart just darkens. Man, bitterness is something we all struggle with. And so the way we can love them, the way that we can have love be the reflection in our life doesn't necessarily mean that we're always going to have a uh, mended relationship, meaning that our relationship goes the same, or especially, and this is on the other end of the spectrum, the far end of like situations of abuse, I would never say to put yourself in a situation back of, in abuse or to go back to that person. That 
should not happen. But how do you then not have bitterness? How do you reconcile relationship that way? What's that really mean? To love everyone means that we are relying on the strength of God and recognizing that his love for everyone is pure. Our love is not. It's tainted by our experience. We are always going to think of the things that we've done or they've done, and it's going to change the level of how much we like them or hate them. But God's love is pure. He even loves those who have rejected him, those who have pushed him away. He offers us redemption because of that love. And so if we rely on that love, then we find ourselves in a place where we can lean on God to give us the ability to forgive those who have wronged us, those who have harmed us, abused us. You don't have to go back to them. You don't have to uh, go to them and be like, man, we're going to be best friends again. No. But it does mean that your heart's not going to foster bitterness toward them. It means that when you hear their name, you no longer clench up and allow anger to rule your mind in that moment. Rather, you're able to surrender it to God and say, yeah, I I want to hate them, but God, you do a work in me so that I don't hate them. Don't waste time on hate. Don't waste time on bitterness. Move forward in the grace that God grants us, and you're going to find that your life is so much better because of it. And once again, it's a reflection of your relationship with him. And God's going to do amazing things through that. It's an amazing testimony to be able to say you've forgiven someone that has wronged you. All right. Second, second thing uh, that we see as evidence of our salvation is perseverance. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, the beginning of this passage is, once again, what we've talked about. There are people in the church that aren't Christian, and they have been deceived by themselves, or they're deceiving others. But that's not the focus of what the author is saying here. Really, the focus is that this is an encouragement for repentance. And it's an encouragement for us to repent because he's saying the focus is not on the past. It's not on the future. It's not on what you think other people's hearts are. The focus is on what's your faith look like right now. What's it look like today? And we think of perseverance and we think of this long game, right? Because that's what it is. It's persevering till the end. And we think of this long game, but the truth is we get caught up sometimes in that, and then it becomes super difficult to think in terms of, man, I got to persevere through all this, all this time. Man, that's tough. So the way I think of it is if you're walking through the woods at night and you got a little flashlight, you point it out here, you're going to trip on something. You point it behind you and look at where you came from, you're going to trip on something. Look where you're going. Put the light in front of your feet and watch where you're going. If you live every single day focused on, do I have a good relationship with God right now? I promise you, if you do that every moment of every day, in 50 years, you still will have a relationship with God. Go day by day. That's what Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is saying right here. Bring yourself to a point where you repent today. Focus on the present. So if you're in sin, repent. If you're emotionally disconnected and don't feel like you have any kind of relationship or haven't felt God's presence, repent. If you're not in community, repent. If you're worshiping your own convenience or worshiping some other idol, repent today, right now. And that's why I said at the beginning that this time is for you to evaluate your own heart is you can't tell somebody else where their heart is at and that they should repent, 
The truth is you got to look at yourself and know that you should repent. John uses present tense verbs throughout this entire passage because he recognizes the question of our assurance and salvation has nothing to do with the past or the future. It has to do with the present, with today. And so the key question becomes, is your faith alive? Is it growing? Is it continuous? Is it happening right now? Is your faith alive? Repentance is not only for the unbeliever, but a continuous sorrow and grief for our sin throughout our entire lives. It makes no difference. And that's also why the stuff we talked about when it comes to the different areas and schools of thought, of theology, when it comes to eternal security, all that, in reality, it doesn't make a difference because we're called to look at ourselves in the condition of our heart today, right now, and repent. And so look at yourself today and repent. Is your faith alive? And if you do have faith, if you do have a faith that's alive, then praise God and repent of the sin that's trying to take root in your heart right now and turn to Jesus. And if you don't have faith, then repent and turn to Jesus. The answer's the same for everybody. We must repent of our sin and turn to Jesus. It's beautiful because it's simple. So don't complicate it. Repent and turn to Jesus. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking through this whole thing, man, I really don't know what my salvation is. Maybe you grew up in the church and you're like, man, I don't know. I was baptized when I was like maybe eight, but I don't, I don't know if I've actually ever had a relationship. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I've gone through a season where I'm just like, man, God, I don't know if there's anything between us. Or maybe if you're sitting there and you just uh, walked in a week ago and you're like, man, I don't really know about this. I think I believe it, but does that mean I'm actually uh, a Christian now? Like, how's that work? Well, once again, the answer is the same. Turn away from your sin. Believe that what Christ says in his holy word is true. Turn toward Jesus and enter into a relationship with him. And then the amazing thing is that you can walk out of this room today and never have doubt again. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for all you do. I thank you so much for the security that you offer us that that we can give our lives to you right now in this moment. We can worship you and you can say, You are my child, and I love you, and I adopt you, and I brought you into my family, and we are going to have communion forever. And we can rest in that. And just as any relationship has its up and downs, and we may go through times where we're angry, we're upset, we're frustrated, we're confused, yet our relationship with you can stay unwavering as we ask the question, is my faith alive in you? Right now, today, God, you give us so much grace. And I thank you for that. Help us to be able to accept that grace that you are showering upon us. Don't let us be ground that just produces thorns and thistles. Rather, let us be ground that produces fruit, fruit of obedience, of righteousness, of love, and perseverance through everything, through all the trials, all the turbulence in our life. God, you are so wonderful, and I worship you in this moment, and I just ask that we glorify you in all things that you do. And if there is somebody in this room right now where today is the day that you think, man, I I want to know for a fact that I am a child of God. I want to know for a fact that I am saved, that I have accepted this free gift then let today be the day that you take that step forward. All it takes is just simple prayer. Just talk to God and say, God, I believe what your scripture says. I believe the gospel. I believe that Jesus came and died for me. I may not understand everything completely, but I know that is true. Just say, I believe in that. And I want to ask for forgiveness for all my sin, all the things I've done in my life that just don't honor you. And I want to chase after you from today on. 
I want to walk with you. I want a relationship with you, Jesus. That's all it takes. It's simple. It's easy. And it will be the best decision you've ever made. God, you are so glorious. Thank you. Right now, we're going to start transitioning into the next section of the service where uh, we're giving. The, the plates will come down for giving. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to give. And it's, I mean, it's a reflection of our obedience again. That we are basically saying that everything else in our life is not more important than you are. That's all it is. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this opportunity to worship in that way. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to worship through music and song. So God, as we move forward in the rest of today, let us remember that that's what this is. It is worship to glorify you, to honor you, and to dwell upon you. Thank you. Amen.